Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 240 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Chaos Coordinated, an interview with Jessica Jensen. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, we come to understand that mindset is the most important element of healing on a Lyme disease journey. And one of the things you have to do to locate a proper mindset is to overcome false beliefs. And the false belief we've identified as the biggest challenge in the Lyme disease community is the false belief that you have to be wealthy in order to be able to heal from Lyme disease. Well, now we have an opportunity to break that false belief. We have a young woman who had a long diagnostic journey and ran out of money. But despite running out of money, she was still able to heal and she was able to heal in a budget. And if you listen to this episode, you will learn too how to heal on a budget. Without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Jessica Jensen to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hello, Jessica Jensen, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope what I share today helps someone on their journey. Well, thank you for uh, offering that prayer as we start the podcast. And we've been looking forward to having you on the podcast for a long time. Jess, I shared with you offline that uh, Matt has been um, praising you in many, many different ways long before you came on the podcast, long before you and I got a chance to meet one another. So I am actually really excited to do this podcast with you because it's been a long time coming. So uh, Jess, why don't you share with um, our listeners where you're calling in from today? I am calling in from Hillsborough, New Hampshire. So how long have you been a native of New Hampshire? Um, right after high school, I had moved up in this area. So after 2008 and before that, I grew up in North Andover, Massachusetts, and that's where I grew up. So you're a Northeastern gal and uh, clearly someone who is growing up on the line belt. Yes. So what was, like, what was it like to grow up in Massachusetts? Uh, what, what kinds of things did you do? What, what was your education like? What kind of sports or activities did you uh, partake in? Um, growing up was great. Um, we had a beach place that we spent our summers at in Salisbury. So that was a memory that I'll always remember. Um, school was good. I always was the shy, quiet type. Um, wasn't super athletic. Uh, I did things like track, um, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> so talk to us about, uh, talk to us about what kinds of things you did with your family. What kind of outdoor activities you do? What kinds of things did you do when you went to your beach house at Salisbury? What was that all like? Um, we would obviously spend days, full days at the beach when we were there. Um, I always remember too, like just being outside a lot growing up. I know it's like different now. People have technology and they're like, video games and all that stuff. But I remember getting home from school and just going outside and playing with everyone on the street. So when you, when you were a young child, what kind of things did you think you were going to do growing up? Meaning what, what did you think you had a passion for professional? It's crazy because like when I was first asked when I was super young, what I wanted to be when I grew up, the answer was a teacher. And it never changed every single time that I was asked. And it kind of like runs in my family too. I have aunts that are teachers and my mom had a family daycare growing up. So that like helping heart empath kind of thing definitely runs in the family. 
So you had this passion for forming the minds of young people and the future of this country. And that's what you were working towards from the first time anyone ever asked you what you wanted to do all the way until today, right? Yes. So uh, what kind of classes were you taking and what kinds of activities were you doing to prepare yourself to become the teacher who was going to be helping young people form their futures? So at first I went to a community college because it made more sense, it was cheaper, and then I could transfer. But there I was doing like child growth and development and like the basic courses. And then I had transferred to Merrimack College to finish my degree in um, elementary education and moderate disabilities. And during this whole time too, I was also working two jobs, one teaching in early childhood, like I've taught in toddler classrooms, preschool classrooms, and kindergarten classrooms. Um, so that was helping me to prepare as well being inside the classroom while I was learning in school. So let's talk about your, um, your, your time um, in the line belt, right? You're in line belt your entire life. And uh, you said you spent a lot of time outdoors. So what did you know about ticks and tick diseases um, that would have helped you to protect yourself uh, while you were doing all of your outdoorsy activities and spending so much time uh, at the beach house? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, never learned about it in school. My parents weren't aware of it. We've never really done any like tick checks after being outside. Just had no idea. <laughs> so you said your mom um, was the owner of a of a um, of a daycare. So she was taking care of other people's children at was that at home or was that at another location? That was at home. Now, um, did your mom ever receive any training that would have helped her to protect the small children under her care? from coming in contact with ticks or tick diseases. Not that I'm aware of. Now you spent a lot of time both uh, in the educational community learning about um, how to care for young children. And you also had several jobs in that community. Did you receive any training either at your community college, at the very good college you had gone to um, where you were completing your undergraduate education or at any of the jobs that would have helped you to protect children from coming in contact with ticks and tick diseases? Nope. So talk to us about how, um, how your journey to become a teacher started to have some challenges when you started to get sick. So I started to get sick in 2011 and I was in school at that time, but I kept pushing until 2015 when my body didn't want to go anymore, couldn't function. Um, and I wasn't even diagnosed then, like I had to stop college. I was three classes away from my bachelor's degree and I just couldn't do it anymore. So you had a crash. You had a crash in 2015. Yeah. So, uh, so let's, let's give folks the full context here for at least the full timeline. So you started to get sick in 2011. Mm -hmm. You fought through it until 2015. 
You had the crash in 2015, so you couldn't function any longer, but then you didn't get diagnosed for some time after that. So when did you finally get your diagnosis? Just so we can outline the uh, timeline. The uh, diagnosis came in 2016. Okay. So you had, uh, you had severe symptoms starting in 2011, and you did not get a diagnosis for an entire five years before, um, before your diagnosis, correct? Yes. During that like whole entire time when I knew something was wrong too, and I was going to the doctors, they're just like, oh, you're working two jobs. You're going to school. You're just stressed, depressed, and anxious. I don't think there's like anything wrong. I don't think I need to do any testing or blood work. Like you're good here. Try these prescriptions. Like nothing's wrong with you. Okay. So let's pause there for a second. I want to look back before 2011 with you. Do you ever recall finding a tick biting you at any time? Or were you ever told by a family member that, they, that you had a tick biting you any time before 2011? 2011 is when I think I got bit. Um, I had a bullseye mark on my leg and I didn't really know what that meant. And at that time, I wasn't like super symptomatic. So I didn't think like, anything of it. I didn't pull a tick off of that area, but it well, could have happened. But Jess, I'm, I'm asking you, and I think you're right. I think you, it's likely you were bitten then if you had a bullseye, but let's not get to the bullseye yet. I just want to know, do you ever recall at any time finding a tick on your body that you had to remove, or were you told at any time during your childhood that your parents or some other adults found a tick biting you? Before that, no. I've had okay. ticks after that but before that no okay so let's let's um let's talk about that a little bit so since 2011 you said there were there were ticks that were that you found on you how many times did you find ticks on you after 2011 um maybe three times okay so give give us the the context for the three times you found ticks on you what what had you been doing and how did you find the tick on you um i well living in new hampshire and in the middle of nowhere i walk my dogs all the time on the trails and different things so after being outside in the woods with them is usually when i've found ticks and even more recently maybe like a year ago I found one in my hair and it was more full, like even trying to be thorough and doing tick checks and whatnot. I missed that one. And that was on. So, so Jessica, you said that you, you, you are, you're a, a dog person or you have companion animals out. Is that something you've always had during your life? Did you have dogs during your childhood? Definitely. Do you ever recall finding ticks on your dogs during your childhood? Not when I was younger, but as I got older, yes. I so there were, there were times during your youth, prior to your, um, your becoming ill in 2011, where you found, where family members found ticks on your dogs. Yes. Now, did that cause you to have any concern when you were finding ticks on your dog, that perhaps the dogs were bringing ticks into the house and they could come in contact with you? And were you taking any steps to protect yourself or were your family members taking any steps to protect you all from uh, coming in contact with ticks that were being brought in by your dogs? Um, when I was younger, I feel like they did the, like the treatment that you put on their back and like check them every once in a while. 
but nothing like really beyond that. It seems to me that largely what you were doing, well, what your family was doing was protecting the dogs from the ticks, but not really seeing that that was a possible um, danger to your family that you could all be coming in contact with ticks because the dogs were bringing them in the house and you were coming in contact with your dogs. And I can tell from your Instagram, you love your dogs, you're hugging your dogs all the time. I'm sure that's not something that just recently started, right? I mean, you had an affectionate relationship with your dogs, you were hugging them, you were laying on them. And what was happening probably was you were putting yourself in a position where you were coming in contact with ticks, right? Yes. So, so talk about the 2011 event where you found the bullseye, right? Um, how did you find the bullseye and what part of your body was the bullseye on? It was on the side of my upper leg and it was warmer months then. So I was wearing shorts. So it was very easy to notice. Um, and I didn't really know much about Lyme or anything like that at the time. So I just kind of was hoping it would go away. And then if it didn't go away, then I would go to the doctors. But the mark faded and I was decent at that time. So I didn't really think anything needed to be done. Okay. So um, you, you did not know what a bullseye rash was at the time. You were not Lyme aware enough to know that a bullseye rash means that you're suffering from acute Lyme disease. So you didn't do anything and you just went on with your life and you were still relatively healthy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so now talk to us about what the contrast was between Jessica's health before 2011 and Jessica's health after 2011. I want, to, I want you to talk to us about how you changed physically and how you changed emotionally, right? Physically, including neurologically, and how you changed emotionally after you started to get sick, sick in 2011. So before 2011, I was always a go, go, go kind of person. Um, worked, school, um, did all the adulting and all the socializing. Um, I was a very like happy, friendly person, liked to connect and make new friends. Um, when I got sick in 2011, I started with very many symptoms like migraines, um, body pain, digestive issues. I would bloat a lot and people would even ask like if I was pregnant, like that's how loaded I would be. Um, or, or how rude they were. Yes, definitely. Um, and emotionally, then I was probably just confused and worried, especially when I wasn't getting help from doctors in the beginning of if it would get worse or like, is this what my life is going to be? And it's kind of like hard to like, you think in your twenties, it's the time for you to go to school, to have fun, like to do all these things before you like really settle down. And I felt like I couldn't do the same things that everyone around me was doing because my body was getting sicker and sicker as time went on. So before 2011, you were a really healthy person who was burning the candle at 12 ends, two jobs, school, friends, social contacts. You would just sort of took for granted this very healthy body that you had, and then it changed, right? Yeah. 
So now you, you gave us a general overview about how things changed between 2011 and 2016. So let's now get into some of the, the details, right? When did you first see a doctor after you had these symptoms in 2011? Um, probably within um, six months of the bite. I had like some things too that were going on in 2011, which probably made Lyme easier to have fun in my body. Um, so let's I, talk about that, right? So, so were there some immune disrupting events, Jessica, that you believe caused your body to lose the ability to fight off this uh, Lyme disease that you believe you came in contact with in 2011? So in 2011 too, I had the starts of cervical cancer. I had to get the LEAP procedure and then my doctor at the time recommended the HPV vaccines saying that, yeah, I was exposed to certain strains, but I should get that to protect me from that point on and that'll help so that it doesn't come back. And I didn't really research more into those vaccines. I just trusted the doctor at the time and I got them and that I had a re like not an initial reaction, but that is what I believe caused my POTS. So like that happened and then I was bit and then ta-da. <laughs> okay. So talk to us about how your, um, how your symptoms developed and what other doctors you, you began to see. So fatigue became more of a problem pain became more of a daily problem. Um, I started, well, I was at my primary probably way too long and she wasn't listening. And what I know now, I probably should have fired her a lot sooner than I did. Um, but I changed my primary care doctor and that was helpful because she then started to um, send me to specialists. She's like, I know something's wrong. Let's send you and see what we can figure out. So I went to like a gastroenterologist, a cardiologist, a neurologist, um, so many different ologists. <laughs> and um, they started to diagnose me with things like IBS, interstitial cystitis, chronic migraines, chronic sinusitis, uh, POTS eventually. It was crazy because even then when I went to the cardiologist who first diagnosed me before sending me to a neurologist that specializes for things with POTS, um, they did the tilt table test. And during it, I didn't pass out like I did like times before that but so he came in and he was like oh it's negative the tilt table's negative and I'm like yeah maybe for like me passing out but what you saw isn't that an indicator for POTS and he looked at this stuff again and he was like oh yeah I guess you do have that I was like okay so so Jessica I, I understand from our our uh, pre-interview conversation, you saw over 20 doctors before you were diagnosed. Yes. 
So let's talk about each doctor and their specialty and how they were sort of looking through the prism of their specialty and only looking at particular symptoms. Was that what was happening with each one of these doctors? Yes, definitely. And I think that's what bugs me about Western medicine now because the body works as a whole and everything affects one another. And these specialists weren't even communicating with each other to put like the bigger pieces that were at play together. So is it really Western medicine that's the problem? Or is it that we have a system where doctors are not encouraged to treat the whole patient? They're actually encouraged to send you to another specialist and essentially pump the ball or the can down the road so that your, your diagnostic issues become somebody else's problem. Right. There's definitely positives in Western medicine, just the way that it is and how it functions isn't the best with the lack of communication. Right. And, and, and also with the lack of time that insurance companies allow doctors to spend with us, right? Because you know, we, we engage in this debate about Eastern and Western medicine all the time. And one of the questions that Matt always asks our guests about finally meeting a Lyme literate doctor is, well, what was different between the Lyme literate doctor who's Western trained and all of the doctors that you saw before a Lyme literate doctor? And almost uniformly, we hear they spent time with me. They listened to me. My diagnostic meeting was two hours, right? We have a very different amount of time and interest and experience, even though they're Western trained. So I think this Western Eastern, you know, dichotomy or uh, allopathic versus naturopathic is really not the issue. I think, quite frankly, the issue is doctors having the time and the interest to treat me rather than a symptom and punt me over to the next specialist. Definitely agree on that and have seen that. It's either five minutes here or like you said, an hour, two hours to actually take the time and listen and put pieces together. So one of the challenges you felt during the course of your 20 doctor uh, journey was you weren't being heard. People were not listening to you. They were listening to symptoms. And were they also also offering you treatment for the symptoms or were they just pumping you to the next guy or gal or person? Yes, they offered a lot of prescriptions. And at one point when they weren't clear on what was going on and I was feeling so horrible and was trying to get through school and work and everything, I took prescriptions and I probably was on 20 some I had reactions to and um, others I feel like didn't really have a positive or a negative effect on how I was feeling. So I definitely had that part in my journey where I was just taking any pill in hopes that it would make me feel better. So can you give us a list of the types of medications you were prescribed by the 20 doctors that you journeyed with before your, before your diagnosis? So some things I was on was I tried beta blockers for my POTS. I was allergic to those. Um, uh, Fludrocortisone for the POTS too. Um, experimented with some like anti-anxiety, anti-depression medicine. Um, what else did they try? As if that's not enough. Right. There's 
there's just so many that I, I just can't think of them all. <laughs> so, so Jessica, you, you gave us this very powerful description a couple of minutes ago of you, you know, between 2011 and 2015, trying to grit through all of these different symptoms, but you're getting sicker and you're getting sicker and you're getting sicker. Now, are you describing the progression of your illness and the severity, you know, the increasing severity of your symptoms to each of the new doctors that you're seeing and letting them know that despite trying a particular prescription with a particular doctor, when you've come to the next doctor, it's gotten worse. Were you letting them know it was getting worse? Yep. And they just kind of looked at me confused a lot of the times or like made me feel crazy. Like this works for so-and-so, this should work for you. Like too, even I tried, like I had insomnia at the time too and tried sleeping medication. And my doctor would be like, this should knock out a 300 pound man. Why aren't you sleeping? Like, I don't know, you tell me <laughs> like, what's going on. All right, so, so we, we, we've pumped you up with enough medicine to knock out an elephant and it's not helping you at all. Exactly. So let's just talk about how this medical trauma was affecting you emotionally. You're, you're, you're sick, you're getting worse, you're getting worse, you're, you're going to doctor after doctor, you're telling them that you're getting worse, they're giving you medicines, you're not getting any improvement. How is this impacting you emotionally? It was definitely draining and hard to go through. And I think like during this whole entire time too, since doctors were basically saying that I was crazy, the people around me were confused. Like they wanted to help. They didn't know how to help, but they also didn't know like if something was wrong because this doctor goes to school for so much time and they're smart and they should know all these things and should be able to help. Like, is she crazy? So I felt like during that time I went through a lot of it alone, fighting for answers and trying to advocate for myself when I felt really bad and it was definitely hard to go through. I remember even like getting out of tests. And um, at that time, Fight Song was the like song that was on the radio all the time. And I remember I'd like get in my car, like tears streaming down my face. And that song would come on and I'm like, I have to keep going. Like something's wrong. I know something is wrong and I'm going to get answers, but I had to maybe change what I was doing because what I was doing wasn't working. So Jessica, at any time during this traumatic experience that you were having, did the doctors and the way your family and friends were reacting to the doctors cause you to doubt whether or not you were sick? Or did you always know that you were sick? And did you always know that there was an answer? And no matter what was happening around you, you were going to continue to get through the process of, a, of, of getting a diagnosis? I felt at times uh, I doubted if something could be wrong, but two, it didn't really last very long. I would stand back up, brush myself off and keep going. Like it could last an hour, it could last a day, but it wasn't really like I stayed there thinking that there was no answer beyond I was crazy. Okay. So it didn't cause you to have a general belief that you were crazy or there was nothing wrong with you. Did it at any point create a general belief in you that you couldn't get better? 
um, at that time, since I wasn't really like diagnosed with root causes as to why I was feeling certain way, I wasn't really sure and I didn't have that clarity that I could get better. I hoped that I could and I was going to try to find a way, but I wasn't really sure. So let's talk about the social impact of this five-year journey, or the, actually the four years of the journey before your, before your diagnosis. You said that you had a lot of people in your circle who wanted to help you, right? Uh, talk to us about who those people were and how first your developing illness impacted your relationship with these people, meaning were you disappointing people and were they starting to abandon you or at least believe they didn't have much in common with you any longer, so they, they stopped interacting with you? Um, and did the failure to get a diagnosis exacerbate it or make it worse so that people would separate from you because they didn't really think there was anything wrong with you? During this time, my parents have always been there, even though they haven't really been sure of what to do or how to help, but they've never left my side and has have been there to support me through it all. Uh, also, my boyfriend has been with me this whole entire time too. And one good girlfriend has stuck by through the whole entire journey, but she too has illnesses and was kind of figuring out her stuff. So she knew what it was like to some degree, even if we didn't have the same illnesses. So those were the four people that have been a constant in my life through this whole entire journey. Everyone else seemed to just fall away during the whole process. So, so you, your mom and dad always believed in you. You know, they, they always saw the greatness in you, even when you couldn't see it in yourself. Your boyfriend always stayed with you. He could always see the greatness in you, even though you couldn't see it in yourself. And this one friend who was chronically ill, you and she had that in common. So you were able to continue to maintain a relationship. But the people who were not chronically ill, um, who you didn't have that in common with, and who you, you know, could no longer interact with, they, they started to fall away. So what impact did that have on you emotionally? I mean, did that, that again, cause you to believe that you could never get better? Did it cause you to believe that you weren't really sick? I mean, what, what did that, what impact did that abandonment have on you? It definitely made me go in my head more and question a lot of things. But even with my friend and seeing that other people go through things, it then made me go to social media more to connect with other people that, get it and doing so like helped in my journey to see what I should ask for test wise or whatnot. So what inspired you to turn to social media? Was that, you think that's something just a function of your age uh, and, and were you active on social media already and you knew there were communities of people that you can connect with uh, or was there, was there some other motive for going on to social media and starting and start to connect with other folks? I was already on there, but just like looking under certain like hashtags or searching Facebook for certain groups um, then helped. So you finally got diagnosed in 2015. Uh, talk to us about um, what was different with the way the doctor who ultimately diagnosed you treated you differently 
than the doctors you had worked with, the 20 doctors that you had worked with before the diagnostic doctor? She took the time. Uh, I think our first appointment was an hour and a half taking a thorough history, like asking questions all the way from like childhood to like current stuff. Um, and then she ordered testing based on the history of what she thought was good. So Jessica, I want to get a better understanding of what your full symptom set was prior to getting diagnosed, because obviously over this five-year window, your symptoms probably progressed and got worse, and I'm guessing you developed new symptoms as well. So can you just give us a high-level list of some of the symptoms you experienced at this time? Sure. I even wrote down a whole list so I wouldn't forget any. Are you ready? We're ready. Okay. Headaches and migraines, dizzy, lightheaded, off balance, fainting, brain fog, uh, forgetful, difficulty thinking and processing information, um, word finding like abilities got harder too, uh, head pressure, head on fire feeling, sinus infections, um, always thirsty, white tongue, um, always hungry, blurred vision, sensitive to sound, smell, and light. Uh, I had like a big startle response too to any loud noise. Um, increased sense of smell, like everything was bothering my nose. Um, hoarseness, sore throat, uh, shortness of breath. Uh, hot flashes, uh, poor circulation, my hands and my feet are always freezing, uh, swollen lymph nodes, uh, my neck and shoulders hurting a lot, uh, back pain, um, let's see, the tachycardia from the pots, my like bloating and GI issues. Um, I've had a lot of weight loss on this journey too. I went from 115 pounds to 85 pounds at my lowest. Um, nauseous, frequent urination, um, insomnia at times, extreme fatigue, um, body pain, joint pain, burning, shooting, um, my feet feeling like they're always on fire. Um, I would get sick if I came in contact with anything, which was hard working with children because I literally had regular sickness on top of chronic illnesses all the time. Um, and maybe my anxiety too had increased during this time. Now, when you finally get diagnosed with Lyme disease, was it through a blood test or was it a clinical diagnosis? It was somewhat through the blood test plus a clinical diagnosis. Um, I just did the regular Western blocks. I didn't have money at the time to do the more expensive ones. And I had four bands pop up and two were Lyme specific, but I believe to be CDC positive you need five bands and those bands were a late stage Lyme disease, not like a early acute situation. Jessica, are you comfortable sharing the name of your naturopathic doctor that diagnosed you with Lyme? Uh, Julia Greenspan. And where is she out of? She's out of Amherst, New Hampshire. And now you have this quasi 
blood work slash clinical diagnosis. And based on the symptoms that you described, those are pretty much all Lyme symptoms we've heard from people in the past. And again, 240 podcast guests, and, and there's a lot of commonalities here with symptoms. And it's very frustrating to hear that over five years, nobody really thought Lyme and many, pretty much all of your symptoms were Lyme related one way or another. So once, once you have this diagnosis, what were, what was your plan with your naturopathic doctor to start to treat and heal from Lyme disease? Um, at that time, unfortunately, I didn't really have a lot of money. Um, so she did a lot of testing in the beginning and then I was kind of left on my own to figure things out because I couldn't afford to keep going to her. So I focused more on, um, kind of like good health, healthy lifestyle practices in the beginning that I had control over, like switching my nutrition, doing like whole nutrient dense foods, no processed stuff, no sugar, all that fun stuff, um, staying hydrated, um, trying to increase exercise, which was hard because at that time too, I was bedridden due to my POTS um, being so bad, but I knew I had to start somewhere. So I slowly increased that. Um, and two, during that time, I made sure I was getting enough like vitamins, minerals, and electrolytes, um, getting outside in nature and the sunshine as much as I could. Um, I did certain supplements to decrease inflammation like CBD and stuff to boost my immune system. I did like an immune support tea, vitamin D, vitamin C. Um, I also at that time tried the results RNA sprays, which had like the silver, the zeolite, the glutathione, and then this neuro extra strength formula. And then I also for my sleep found that when I took magnesium consistently, that helped with my insomnia. So that was kind of like what I did on my own after I knew what I was dealing with. So Jessica, you mentioned that at first your naturopath did a lot of testing and then you sort of did a lot of changes on your own to try to find creative ways to, in an affordable manner, address what was going on in your body. So what were those tests that your doctor did that helped you understand what was fully going on in your body? Obviously the Lyme one and co-infections. Um, she did the basic blood work too to see if all that was good. Um, trying to think. Um, well, why why do you think we can come back to that, Jessica? Because you know how my brain works; I'm all over the place here. And one of the one of the things I want to know about is. You mentioned that you wanted to get outside more nature because you felt that would help you, right? So did you just intuitively know that that would be therapeutic for you and, and healing for you? Because we recently learned from uh, from a Dr. Rolls webinar about detoxing that when you go outside, the outside air actually contains two thirds less CO2 than indoor air. And being outside really can help boost your immune system and plants in nature can help neutralize toxins in your body. So did you know this at the time or is this your body just kind of telling you like, I need to be outside? 
it was just kind of my body at the time telling me to get outside, get some fresh air and sunshine. Yeah. You know, and, and another another thing that's really important for detoxing that we learned this week on the webinar was cultivating a healthy approach to life. And that's how Dr. Rolls referred to it. I think what you just described is exactly consistent with what he's talking about when he refers to cultivating a healthy approach to life before you start to even do anything, right? You need to get your body ready, your, your mind ready, physically and emotionally to move on in your healing journey. And that's exactly what you did during this time period. Yes, I think it's like so, so important to set a strong foundation. And I know like talking to many people, like budget is typically a big issue. And they see these people going to Germany to do this and going to do this expensive thing. And we see all the things that we maybe can't do due to money. And that doesn't mean that we can't do anything. And having that strong foundation is helpful across the board before you even do those expensive kind of treatments. And we couldn't agree more. And we're actually exploring that in some great detail and compiling a list of what a lot of our podcast guests, just like you, Jessica, have done to find ways to continue the healing journey despite having limited financial resources. And there are things that can be done. So thank you for pointing that out. And I think another one you brilliantly discussed was another one that we heard on, on this webinar was increasing blood flow is crucial to healing. And the reason that is, is because our cells become weak. And when our cells become weak, we become sluggish and we build up toxins around our cells. And as we increase blood flow, our cells become more, more healthy. And then we're able to purge more toxins from our cells and get our body moving the way it should in a normal manner. So talk to us about how you knew and, and why you knew that moving and exercise and blood flow is so important for you to heal. Well, being diagnosed with POTS, um, I was researching more into that because I wasn't, um, or I was reacting to those medicines that they said should be helpful. So I saw that exercise was good for that. And I knew my circulation was lacking due to my hands and feet being cold. So, and two, like, as I started to build up, I saw the positive changes within my body, which helped me keep going and keep up with it. I was always in more pain if I was stuck in bed all day. And I saw those positive changes in my symptoms when I would get up and get going. Jessica, I can't thank you enough for saying that because that really hit me personally. And I think it's a struggle that so many of us deal with. And, I, and, I, and again, I'm getting emotional thinking about my own experience here where I knew I had to move to feel better. But when I was bed bound, I would continue to feel worse, meaning my body pain would significantly increase the longer I stayed in bed and the longer I stayed on the couch. But then when I tried to move, I would get symptomatic as well. And I had to find a balance. And, you know, I think a lot of us want to go too hard, too fast. And the lesson I learned is I have to do it gradually. There are things I can do even while laying in bed and sitting on the couch to help move my body and get blood flow and then gradually move from there and do more things. So talk to us about how you dealt with that struggle of, being able to move without having yourself overdo it and be in pain from overdoing the exercise. Yeah, I definitely had to find that balance too. And I was actually talking to somebody about it the other day um, because we think about what we could do before and we know that exercise is good. So we try to do what we used to do. And then we have that like push crash cycle and that gets us nowhere fast. 
so it's kind of like an experiment in the beginning and really being in tune with how certain things make you feel. Um, so in the beginning for me, I would do like floor exercises because having pots, it was hard for me to be upright. So starting there doing things like that were lighter, like yoga or going for walks with my dogs, but not very far doing short walks, maybe doing it a couple of times a day, um, starting where I was at and being very in tune, like when I wake up in the morning, knowing how my body feels that day and what my body is capable of because each day our best is going to be different and we have to change what we do each day to help our body and not hurt it so it's going to look different each day maybe depending on how you feel but if you show up and you try your best that is always enough so Jessica, talk to us about what understanding you had about toxins, right? Because we've really been studying the whole detox part of the healing journey. And as we mentioned earlier, microbes, meaning the Lyme bacteria and things like mold exposure, which we know is coming, you know, we're going to, we'll get to, will weaken your cells. And when your cells get weakened, normal things that your body can purge, normal endotoxins that aren't even, that aren't even related to tick-borne illness, get stuck in your body and they back up and they result in chronic illness. So it's never just the Lyme microbes, it's the whole body effect as you kind of hinted at earlier. So it sounds like you had a basic understanding of this and that's how you developed this core framework you did in the beginning to really set the stage for your body to heal. So talk to us about what you knew about detox and toxins and setting the stage for your body to be primed for healing when you first got diagnosed. So when I first got diagnosed too, I started to read a lot of books. Um, read a lot of blogs, read a lot of medical journals and different things. So that's where I kind of saw some common things that I should try. Um, what was I going to say? Well, what, kind of, what, what books, Jessica, though? So you mentioned you did a lot of reading and you did read some books and some things online. So what were some really good resources you found that helped you early on when you were first diagnosed to give you these really key steps? Because these are all in Rich, Rich and I's opinions, the best steps to start with when you get diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. So what resources were you reading that were leading you to these conclusions? So one of the first books that I read was by Dr. Horowitz, Why Can't I Get Better? And it was crazy even like that was right before I got diagnosed with Lyme. And you know how he has a questionnaire in that book to see like if it's good to look into I scored, I jotted this down last night, 122. And it said as the results that if your score was above 46, that you should probably definitely look into Lyme. So the fact that I scored 122 on, on that questionnaire was definitely like sending me in the right direction. Um, so what's interesting really uh, about that is Dr. Horowitz created this questionnaire and he calls it the MSIDS questionnaire, which is the Multiple Systemic Infectious Disease Syndrome questionnaire. And that's very much in line with what I just described and what you've been discussing is there's so much more going on. There are multiple systemic infectious problems going on in your body. So it sounds like what you learned there helped you apply that to do all of these other techniques that are extremely affordable that everybody can do to prime your healing journey, right? So were there any other resources that you read besides Dr. Horowitz's book and taking his MSITS questionnaire that helped you make your plan early on in your journey? 
Um, I also read Dr. Rawls' book, um, The Naturopath That I Did See, Julia Greenspan. She has a book. But two during this time, I also read books that would help with mindset and growth in general too, which I think was helpful because it's never just the physical stuff. There's a big mind-body connection as well. And we can't just focus on the physical. Um, We need to have the emotional part, the mental part, the part of healing as well. Jessica, we're definitely going to get there for the mindset piece of it, but I have some more physical questions I want to follow up with you first on. So you did mention that you did the results RNA sprays, which I don't think we've ever heard on this podcast before. And I think there were several. So can you give us a little bit more detail about what results RNA is and what the types of sprays are you used and how they helped you when you were first diagnosed? So they were things like um, a silver spray. Like colloidal silver? Yes. Um, and then there was a binder and I didn't really know much information about it at the time. I just saw their like detox or support program combination. So there was zeolite, which now I know is a binder of some sort, um, glutathione, the master antioxidant. And then there was a neurological, um, spray. It had multiple things in it. I don't really know off the top of my head what it is, but I definitely had a lot of neurological symptoms. So I took that one as well. So I want to challenge you on something because you made a comment earlier that when you first got diagnosed, you really didn't do much to treat because of limited resources and you did more things to just kind of get your body ready. But I want to argue to you that I think the things you were doing actually were helping you treat and kill the pathogens in parallel. What do you think about that? Yes, definitely. Um, And like knowing what I know now about those things, I definitely was treating and binding and trying to support my body in removing Lyme and other things. Um, Yeah. I mean, the colloidal silver, although it's it's really great at helping you not get sick and enhancing your immune system, it also is antimicrobial, right? binders. And we've, we've learned this in studying the detox stuff that I mentioned earlier, which and I really dive in deeply into now, when you take binders, you're helping take these toxins that are built up in your body and remove them from, from your system, whether it's your GI tract or your bloodstream, wherever these, these toxins are. And as a result of doing that, your immune system is less burdened because you're removing these toxins from your body. And what happens when your immune system is less burdened? It acts the way it was designed to behave and when it does that, what does it do? It goes after foreign things like Lyme bacteria and like tick-borne illnesses, right? So as you're cleaning your body, you're, you're strengthening and supporting your immune system, which is doing what it was designed to do and kill things as a result of those treatments. So I think that's a really cool connection there that many people don't make that I think you're observing now as well. Yes, definitely. And it did like help the basic foundational support. And then that, um, I went from bedridden to being able to work as a kindergarten teacher again with that. I was in by no means remission. I was still symptomatic every day, but was able to function better. Jessica, realize how powerful that is, what you just said. You were bed bound, right? You then were diagnosed with Lyme disease. 
You had almost no money to spend on treatment. You did your own research. You came up with your own protocol by sourcing different things from all the research that you did. And you got yourself, Jessica, nobody else. You got yourself from being bed bound to teaching kindergarten again. Think about how powerful that is. So I do... No. <laughs> so I do, I do want to follow up a little bit more because you did touch on inflammation as well. And you mentioned some supplements that you take for inflammation and inflammation is such a common thing discussed on this podcast and something that I've experienced in my journey and I'm still working with as well. So what specifically did you do to address inflammation beyond what we discussed? Was there anything else that we did talk about in detail that can help our listeners regarding reducing inflammation? Um, I definitely used the CBD, which was helpful. And at, at that time too, I was trying things like turmeric, come to find out down the line, I'm sensitive to turmeric, even though that can help other people, but it was negatively impacting me. Um, for inflammation too, I kind of do a lot of like ice and heat. Um, throughout the days where I'm feeling extra. Um, I also more recently use Inflamacom by Microformulas or Cellcore, which is good. Um, you know what's in that, Jessica? Inflamacom by Microformulas. You know what herbs are in there that help? Not to put you on the spot, but. <laughs> it is right in my cabinet. If you can wait one second and I can tell sure. you. <laughs> yeah. And what's really interesting while you're grabbing that, Jessica, is we have one of our good friends, Margot Gunning, who's been on this podcast. Rich and I had a conversation with her earlier in the week, and she shared with us that Cellcore is really commonly known for treating parasites, but they also have really powerful supplements for things like inflammation that you're about to share with us and also for treating Lyme. And there's all kinds of courses out there that are available for people to learn how micro, uh, micro formula slash Cellcore could be beneficial for, do, for treating a lot of tick-borne illnesses and things that are commonly associated with tick-borne illnesses. That's why I'm, I'm curious to see what's in that microformulas bottle that you have for inflammation. The, I believe you called it the Inflamicon, correct? Yes, it is. Um, there's pomegranate, olive leaf, artichoke leaf, um, broccoli sprouts, blueberry, wheatgrass, fulvic acid, um, things like that. Yep. And fulvic acid, we know, is a systemic binder, which will take out toxins from your bloodstream, right? Which then will help you be less inflamed because you're taking toxins out of your body, which result in an immune response, right? So there's a lot of connections there and just hearing that ingredient list alone. So thank you for, for getting that and sharing that with us. Now, I'm looking at this as like, you know, your phase one, which is to me, was just so powerful in itself. But walk us through how long was this period of self-discovery, finding all these things and getting yourself back to being a kindergarten teacher? How long did that take? see it was so end of 2015 2016 I got diagnosed um probably about a, a year or so um August 2017 was when I was able to start teaching kindergarten again okay so now we're in August 2017 and you're starting to teach again and I I'm Hoping the answer is no to this question, but unfortunately, based on our experience, I'm thinking the answer is going to be yes. Did you have any setbacks? Because we know healing isn't linear, and we know that when you make some progress, sometimes you take three steps forwards and two steps backwards. So walk us through what happened now once you started to teach again and how your health continued to either improve or decline and how you responded to that. 
when I started to teach again, I kind of wasn't smart. I like missed it so much that I went from like bedridden healing to like full-time again. I was like, let's go, go, go. Like I'm feeling somewhat better. Like, let me go back to what I was doing before, which I feel like this journey has taught me to, to like slow down and really focus on what my body needs in the moment. And right then I was excited for the progress that I made that I just wanted to like jump back in. And so that wasn't a good thing. I feel like it stirred up a lot of like pain and fatigue um, from the get-go because I went from nothing to full-time. And two, working with children, I always used to like joke, like I'm a chaos coordinator, <laughs> like especially young children, like it's not boring at all. And they always keep you on your toes. Um, so it wasn't like a sit down at a desk kind of job and do full time that way. It was very active outside in the classroom, like very active. So that stirred up things a little bit, but I was still able to do it. I was able to like rest at night and rest on the weekends and be able to continue to do that job. The time that, um, in November, 2018 is when I got a neck and shoulder injury at that job. And I feel like that's when everything like fell apart again. And things were stirred up within my body is when I got that injury. And then after that, I had found out about molds and wasn't able to work or function again at that point in time. Okay. So I have a lot of follow-up questions to what you just said with Jessica. So the first observation is, I think you gave another extremely powerful tip and recommendation, which is when you're starting to feel better, don't go full force back to what you were doing before. That's a common mistake I have made and many people have made in this Lyme experience, right? So as you went back to your chaos coordinator, right? Being a, a, you know, a kindergarten teacher, you went back 110% and you started to see some decline in your health. And then of course you have this neck and shoulder injury at work, which then set your probably weakened your immune system, compromised your body and allowed the Lyme and, and other things and other toxins to flood in and take over your body again, right? So I guess the first question is, how did you get the neck and shoulder injury at your job? How did that happen? I was kneeling, helping a child with something and another child was dealing with another teacher and wasn't having a good time, ran back in the classroom and pulled my hair when I wasn't even like expecting it. So him running and pulling my hair is what then caused the neck and shoulder injury. So it sounds like burning the candle at both ends would cause your first real infection and crash. And then again, it was what caused this ultimate decline again a second time because you were burning the candle at both ends. And then you have this physical injury, which then your body's like, uncle, I give up. I can't function anymore. And then you had to stop working. Yes. So hopefully because this injury occurred on the job, were you able to get some sort of benefits to your job for not being able to work as a result of that injury? A little bit for a few months I did, but then when I came back to work, they cut my hours and weren't giving me any more in hopes that I would leave because my illness is one and 
to then this injury they had to accommodate for they didn't like it so so how did mold get into the picture because you mentioned shortly after this you know you went back to work part-time and then it sounds like they were kind of treating you differently at work and then did you resign is that what ultimately happened Yes, I just felt like it wasn't a healthy environment to be in, and I wasn't going to be somewhere that I wasn't appreciated. So I cut ties there, um, and I feel like two the months that I was home trying to heal from the neck and shoulder injury, I didn't know at the time that there was mold in that apartment. So I was gone most of the day for when I was working, and then when I was there to heal, my symptoms started to get worse because I was in the environment more. So being out of your home actually was allowing you to heal and not be as sick. But then when you needed to rest even more and you thought you were doing the right thing at home, you were giving yourself a double whammy because you had constant mold exposure. Plus you were trying to recover from the injury you experienced at work. So how did you realize that you had mold in your home? Like when did that epiphany occur that you realized I'm getting worse at home and I have mold exposure? I was sharing my journey openly on social media and going into groups. I had like really bad, like head on fire, shortness of breath, um, things like that. And I was just like, something more is going on. So I started to dig deeper and connect with other people and people on their Lyme journey was like, it sounds like mold toxicity, uh, or it could be like, I couldn't get better fully until I dealt with that first, like, maybe you should look into that. Um, and that's what prompted me to go back to Julia Greenspan and ask for the shoemaker labs to see then if I should test my body and then my location. Okay, so what is the Shoemaker's Labs? So the Shoemaker's Labs are things like VIP, MSH, TGF beta 1, C4A, the HLA, DRG mutation, um, VEGF, ADH, um, MMP9, things like that. Okay. And it was blood work, so it was covered by my insurance at the time, which was good. So this is really interesting. So the Shoemaker's Labs is, is sort of synonymous or comparable to like a tick-borne illness panel, panel. So when you ask your doctor for a full tick-borne illness panel for blood work, we could also be asking our doctors for a Shoemaker's Lab, which will test us for mold exposure, it sounds like. Yes. And some of these things too, if they're high or low, could indicate other stuff like Lyme disease. But if you have a lot of things that are popping up within these labs, it could then prompt you to look further. Um, and ha having these things covered by insurance was a good starting place to see if spending money on a urine test and spending money on these other tests that aren't covered was worth looking into. So this is really interesting because I, I think you're giving us something here that we've really never fully explored with any other guests before as much as mold is so common. I think when people are suspecting Lyme disease, we should be asking for, and you know, we keep building out the list of what's covered by insurance, but I think Look, if we have insurance and it's covered, why not ask for more things to be tested? Because we're going to pay the same copay regardless, right? So I, I always ask for a tick-borne disease panel, an alpha-gal panel, 
I always ask for autoimmune panels because it's so common with Lyme disease, but I personally have not. And I think I will next time I, I see my doctor ask for a shoemaker's panel as well to see where those levels are and what they could possibly indicate for me personally. And is that something you recommend all Lyme patients do because mold exposure and mold susceptibility is so common in people that are chronically ill from Lyme disease? Yes, I definitely recommend that too early in your journey because I know now if you think have things like mold and parasites, those kind of things need to be taken care of first or your Lyme isn't going to budge or you're going to treat your Lyme and you're not going to stay in remission very long. It's going to keep coming up as an issue. So there's definitely an order of operations and the more you know the bigger picture and have as many pieces of the puzzle as you can in the beginning, it'll help you make better decisions. It'll help you ask better questions. It'll help you save money, which we all want to do. <laughs> and Jessica, we, Rich and I couldn't agree more. And we've been doing a lot of studying and research lately, as I indicated earlier. And one of the things we're looking at also is the order of operations and how important is the order of operations. And, you know, we've been feeling more strongly that the order of operations is really crucial. And you just really you know, solidify those beliefs even more for us, because you're right. If you do treat Lyme disease and you don't address constant mold exposure, you're going to possibly get better from Lyme a little bit, but then have a relapse because mold is a chronic immune suppressor. And therefore you're going to make a little bit of progress. Your immune system will be weakened and Lyme will flourish again. So you don't want to waste money by treating Lyme before you address the mold. And the same thing is true of parasites. And parasites for me, and, and this is something that I think I get stuck with often is right now there's this, this really, it's like a fad in the Lyme community to talk about parasites. And I think it's really important. And I don't know if the word fad is really proper, but what makes me concerned about the parasite discussion in the chronic Lyme community is we only talk about GI based parasites, parasites that are in your GI tract that you can excrete through your colon and come out in a stool sample. But we never talk about, or we rarely talk about parasites in your blood, like Babesia, which is a bloodborne parasite you get from a tick bite. We rarely talk about things like nematodes, which are parasites that can be in your brain, eating away at the myelin nerve sheaths in your brain and causing brain damage and things like Alzheimer's and dementia. So what are your thoughts on, on parasites? And have you looked at it from a big picture approach, like I just described, or in your experience, has it primarily been GI-based parasites? When I've learned about parasites, I've definitely seen that they can be in many locations. And for me, through like bioenergetic energy testing, muscle testing kind of thing, people think that I have like liver flukes too. So there's definitely areas in the body other than the GI tract where it can be. So you can't just focus on that one spot. We definitely have exposures in different areas of the body in which they can live and make cozy homes. <laughs> and we know parasites love to live in biofilms too, especially in the brain, right? So you have biofilms in your brain, which we learned from, from many leading Lyme doctors and, and researchers like Dr. Alan McDonald, that these biofilms actually hold the Lyme bacteria in your brain and they hold these microscopic parasites in your brain. And then they cause many like TIA likes, almost mini strokes to kill the, the cells in your, in your brain. And if you don't address that, it can be devastating and lead to things like, like permanent possibly dementia and, and Alzheimer's, right? So I think that's something that people need to consider when thinking about parasites is they can be causing other problems beyond just ones that you're going to excrete and they should be looked at that way as well. So I do a circle back because I know I'm bouncing around here a lot. How did you, so you, you went to social media and social media pointed you to the Shoemaker Labs. You ran that blood work with your doctor. 
And your naturopath then told you based on the results and all those specific levels you described for us that she now concluded that you had mold exposure likely from your home. So did you do any follow-up testing, Jessica? Did you do any like ERMI testing of your home or any other follow-up urine testing or blood testing to get more specific details about what exactly was going on? I did the Great Plains um, urine test for mycotoxins. And a big thing when you're doing tests like this, they are expensive. Some of them are like three to $400. Um, you need to make sure that your drainage pathways are open and um, that you're going to the bathroom peeing and pooping um, and that you're stirring things up kind of like before this, you don't want to take things like binders. You want to take glutathione. You want to sweat the night before, I believe, taking the sample so that something can come out and give you answers in the urine. Sometimes people will take this test and their drainage is so stuck that nothing comes back, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have it. They're just not getting it out of their body for the test to detect it. So having, again, certain foundational things in place before you spend money is super important to do. So we know that when mold is in your body, it becomes a toxin called a mycotoxin. And that mycotoxin can develop in your tissue, as you sort of indicated. And we need to mobilize that mycotoxin so it will become readily available in our urine for this testing through, through uh, Great Plains for the urine test, especially considering it's so pricey. So you just gave us a specific set of things to do to mobilize the mold mycotoxins to increase the likelihood of it showing in your urine when you get this expensive test done, right? So yeah. now the Great Plains urine test is clearly, I'm guessing not covered by insurance, right? No. Okay. Are you, are you comfortable sharing about how much that cost? That I think was 300. And now I guess the question I have is, why did your naturopathic doctor feel that was necessary after having conclusive evidence from the shoemaker labs that you were exposed to mold. What additional information would the Great Plains test give you that you didn't already have from the shoemaker labs? So it'll basically tell you what mycotoxins are high and that can tell you if you are being exposed to a certain kind of mold, which can then help to see if it was more like previous, like was it at work, another house, is it in your current house? So when you go test, oh, I had this mycotoxin, this mycotoxin that is common with, say, penicillium. Oh, when I go look for it in my house, am I seeing penicillium or am I seeing a different kind of mold? It kind of helps you see if your current house and area is an issue. But two, knowing the types of mycotoxins that you are high in also helps you pick certain binders that can help take it out of your body. Each mycotoxin has better binders. There's, there's certain binders too, like biotoxin binder, which is good for mold in general. And, but there's other binders that are more specific for certain mycotoxins. So again, Jessica, you're giving us so much detail that I don't think we've ever gotten this specific level of detail at mold before. So I just want to, I want to summarize and make sure that I'm hearing you correctly that 
the reason to go to Great Plains Labs after having a positive Shoemaker Labs is the Shoemaker Labs is basically saying you've been exposed to mold, but you need to get more detail. So, you know, you're paying 300 bucks out of pocket for the urine test and doing everything you can to have it show in your urine test. And then it, it categorizes or breaks down the specific, I guess, species of the mold. So then when you're testing your home or your work environment or wherever it may be, you can say, yes, this particular mycotoxin in my home matches the one found in my urine sample. And therefore that's the exposure making me sick, right? That's the first piece of it you just described for us. And the second piece you just described for us is once you know that, and you can now find where it's coming from, you can take a remedi remediation steps to help remediate the mold in that location. But more importantly, you still have this in your system and knowing what specific species of mold you have in you can dictate what specific binder will work, west, will work best to remove that mycotoxin from your body is what you said, I believe. Yes. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to make sure I, I, we understood that correctly because I think mold is really important and you're giving us a step-by-step -step instruction set if people suspect mold that they can follow to have success in either ruling mold in or out of their particular healing journey. So thank you for that. No problem. So, and we're going to call this the mold framework and we're going to, we're going to call it the Jessica Jensen mold framework that we're going to develop just because you're inspiring us here with this. So, so now, okay. So talk to us about the results of the Great Plains lab. So do you, do you recall what specific type of mold you were exposed to? So, um, I had high ochratoxin A and gliotoxin mycotoxin. And it was crazy too, like even the first test, like sometimes doctors say like, oh, you might like, it'll show like a little like graph or something next to it. And it might be like this tiny little spot, like, oh, that you're excreting. It's above the normal levels and could be impacting you. But when I looked on my page, it was like filling up the whole entire paper of what I was excreting, which was one good because it showed that I was capable of getting it out and that my drainage was somewhat open at least, which is definitely a positive, but it was kind of scary to see the numbers be that high in the test too. Like, oh, this is really a big issue and something that I'm dealing with right now. Um, but too, with that, I believe those two myco toxins are from the aspergillus family so i think we so it, it, it's interesting because now mindset's folding into this and you touched on this earlier that although you had all of these specific types of mold exposure based on the great plains lab you looked at it like well i know i have all this crap in me but the good news is i was able to mobilize it to get it out so therefore i'm more likely to be able to purge it now that i have more data you said to us i believe yes so that's a really cool way to look at it, I think, instead of saying, oh my God, I'm so sick. Oh my God, I purged this already. I can purge even more and I can get better, right? I like how you kind of looked at that differently than most people would have had a positive spin on it. So right. it's hard when you get like testing at first and you like see these things and it's like a shock to the system, but then you have to always look at that like positive side of things as well. So now you know what you have and you mentioned that based on that, there's a couple of things you can do and, and now implement specific binders. So working with your naturopath, what specific binders did you take to address the specific species of mold that you were exposed to and had in your system? She recommended GI detox at that time, which has multiple things in it. It was charcoal. Um, hmm. I'm trying to remember the full combo. You want me to go what, to my medicine cabinet? <laughs> what's what? Well, just if you could just share a GI detox. Is that is that a microbe formulas blend? 
or no, who makes that? Not a microbe formulas. I think it is. Let me see. Okay, because we do know charcoal is a really powerful binder, but we always caution people when they take that to not take it with other supplements, medications, herbs, or food, because it will pull all of the nutrients and medicinal properties out of the things that you're taking and bind those as well. So I know you have to take that sort of away from other medications and food. So timing, timing is important here as well, I think, right? You definitely do have to take those kind of binders away from like you said, food and other supplements or medications. I couldn't find it in my medicine cabinet, but um, well, I, I can relate. We have so many, so many bottles all over the place. It's hard to find the one you're looking for when it you're uh... <laughs> biobotanical research. Oh, we've heard of biobotanical research. Yep. We've heard about them for sure. That has zeolite, activated charcoal, aloe vera, silica, apple, pectin, and humic and fulvic acid. Okay. So it's biobotanical research is the name of the, the supplement company and the, and the bottle is called GI detox, correct? Yes. So walk us through how you felt. So, so now you realize mold is a big picture of your, 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 your health, right? And you're taking these binders and do you feel better? Do you feel worse? Do you feel the same? You know, walk us through the, the immediate short term after starting the binders. So at that time too, I was having a lot of like reactions and I didn't know at the time that I was developing mast cell activation syndrome from mold toxicity. Um, so when I would take the binders, I felt that it would help lower my like reaction symptoms. Um, I noticed too, cause they always wanted you to increase the binders. And I noticed when I would increase them that it would make me feel worse at times because it was pulling too much and my body couldn't handle that much at that time. So taking binders and even still today, I usually take one capsule. And I know with taking binders too, everyone has to pay attention to if they're pooping enough because it can definitely cause constipation. And if you're constipated and you're taking binders, then you're just going to have a bad reaction. You're building up toxins. You're storing all the toxins now. They're it's binding them, but they're not leaving, right? Right. Yeah. You're just recirculating them in your body. You're stirring them up and you're not getting them out. So that is definitely important to know. So I think, again, you just gave us a really important tip for people listening. When using binders, they're a very powerful tool, but you don't look at a binder as something that's killing pathogens or bacteria are killing Lyme. So therefore you don't think that you really can have a flare or, or a herx, but it's really not a, it's not a herx. I think of it more of as a flare that if you use too, if you, if you use too much of a binder, it will mobilize the toxins too quickly. And when you mobilize toxins, your immune system is going to respond. And what happens, you get extreme inflammation, which can make you symptomatic. Right? So I think what you're, you're cautioning our audience against is going in and using a binder very quickly because it's not going to harm you. And it can, because it can create inflammation and cause you to be very symptomatic. Yes, definitely slow and steady. <laughs> so how, how, when you started to adjust and you started to realize what your sweet spot was to not have too much toxins being mobilized, but also to have a positive therapeutic benefit, did you hit a point where you found your sweet spot and you started to feel better overall using the binder? Um, Honestly, I haven't really felt like 
so much better from mold toxicity and a major part in that is because too, when I looked into my apartment at the time it was there, um, they had the attic remediated, but they didn't really look too much further. And I thought it was in more areas. So we decided to move. And I know a lot of doctors will say that if you can't get out of the exposure, if you have things like the HLA, DR mutation, um, that you can do all of these things to help your body, like binders and reducing the inflammation and maybe mast cell support, things like that. But you're not going to get better if you're still in exposure. So we had moved and we didn't have enough money when we moved. And I like was open with the new landlord saying like, oh, I have this, like, has there been any previous water damage, mold, anything in this apartment? And of course they said, no. <laughs> so we had moved here too. And mold in my current apartment is probably even worse than what it was in my last apartment. How do you so, know that? Is that based on your reaction to the environment or did you actually run some tests? So with this place, um, I kind of, in the first couple months, my mast cell and my reactions were getting worse. And I had talked to people online too. And they said like, sometimes like, yeah, you have that adjustment period with it coming out of your body that it could potentially be a little worse before it gets better. So I kind of like had a month and was like, oh, okay, like, let's see if I have any progress and if things will settle down after a few weeks to a month. They didn't. So then um, still didn't have like a ton of money. Armies are more expensive and usually what people do to see how toxic their location is. So I decided to do immunolytics plate testing in this house. Um, and what you do is you get plates and you set them out in different rooms for, I believe it's an hour, but don't quote me on that. Um, and then you put the covers back on the top of the plates and you leave them for a certain amount of time and you see how many colonies grow. And if it's a lot of colonies, like how many circles are on there, that means that there is a big issue in your place. And when I looked at the plates after 24 hours, mold was already starting to grow. And then after like 48 hours, there was more. And you have the option too, to send these plates to the company within a certain amount of days. And they can then tell you what molds are present. Um, the only negative thing about these plates is that it can't pick up on things like black molds usually because that's usually behind walls and heavier. So those mycotoxins usually don't find their way into a middle of a room on your plate. Um, so there's always that potentially being a problem, but it showed me that penicillium and altenaria were big here and it was like every single room had a problem it wasn't just one central location it was throughout the whole entire apartment and it was crazy too because at this time i would even like set certain fruit out and it would go bad or it'd get moldy quicker than like anywhere before or 
one time my dad got me flowers and I left them in the kitchen and the next morning there was mold all in the water. So, so a lot of questions on this. So I guess, can you just repeat the name again? It's an immunolytics. I'm sorry, immuno what? Immunolytics. Immunolytics. Okay. It's an immunolytics plate. So you have this immunolytics plate that you put out and it sounds like it's more affordable than doing an ERMI testing, right? So are you comfortable sharing how much these plates cost with our listeners? I believe each plate, depending on like how many rooms you want to test is $3 a plate. But then what you can do is look at and see what is developing on these plates. And then you can send them and then pay for the testing of the plates to see what's on them. So if you notice that the molds look the same in all the plates, then maybe you would just send one instead of sending all of them back. And I think that it was roughly maybe $25, $35 to get the actual like testing done to see what kinds of molds were on those plates per plate. So it also doesn't look for black mold because that's heavier and behind walls. So it's just picking out much more molds that are out in the open space that are lighter and can be captured by these plates, right? So the concept is you put the plate out, you leave it open for an hour or so, you put the cover on, and then you see what grows in there. And then I guess certain indicators on the plate will, I guess, what is there? Is there like a, like a little line that will appear to show a positive indicator of a specific uh, species? Like how does that work when you're looking at the results on the, on the plate? So on the plate, you will then see like colonies start to form. So circles of mold starting to grow. And usually they say like, if you have one to three, it might not be like that high. It might be like you bringing it in from the outdoor environment. If you have like four to six, like you should probably get it checked into. If you have six to nine circles of mold forming on that one plate, then you have a bigger issue. So it kind of tells you looking at it um, when, what might be more of an issue. So you actually visually see the colonies form and you count and use that as an indicator of what's going on see if you want to get it tested. Yes. So again, you're giving us a really powerful hack here to save money, right? When you have limited resources, you don't want to do an army test, but you proved your current apartment has a ton of mold by using these affordable immunolytics plates. And now you have that information. So you did also touch on something else that I want to ask you to go into more detail about. You mentioned the HLA-DR mutation. And if you have that, you said that even though you're doing everything right with the binders, if you're still exposed to mold, you're not going to get better because of this mutation. So if you can elaborate more on what this mutation is and how it can have an overlap with, with chronically ill people, specifically in the chronic Lyme community, dealing with mold. So basically with this mutation, your body can't recognize these mycotoxins and, as like a threat and get them out of your system. So what ends up happening is they just accumulate in your body and it gets stored until it then becomes too much for your body to handle. Um, that's why sometimes too, like people will ask like, oh, how are you so sick? And your boyfriend's not sick. He doesn't have this gene mutation. So when he has the mycotoxins in his body, his body sees it and excretes it because they know it's not supposed to be there where my body is saying like, oh, what's this? Let's, let's just save it for later, just in case we need it. And it accumulates until it becomes a big issue. 
So really, I think what I'm hearing is though, it's so much more, right? I mean, why, why is it affecting you compared to your boyfriend? And it's because you have this HLA-DR mutation, which causes your body to store these mycotoxins. Also, you have probably still existing Lyme bacteria in your body and possibly other co-infections and tick-borne illnesses, all of which contribute to, again, a weakened immune system. And therefore, your body is less able to manage the mold exposure like somebody like your boyfriend could, right? And that's the answer to so many people who ask, why are you sick and I'm not from mold exposure? Or why are you sick from Lyme disease and I just had uh, you know, a minor, easy experience with it? And it's all because of these other things that are going on dogpiling to contribute to chronic illness in patients, right? So it's, again, it's never just a Lyme bacteria. It's never just mold. There's so much more going on to contribute to why Jessica is sick and not getting better, right? Mm -hmm. So I also want to touch on MCAS. So you mentioned that mold toxicity will lead to mast cell activation syndrome. So how did you realize you had MCAS and how did you realize it was connected to your mold exposure? Um, I basically felt sensitive to the world and was having what felt like allergic reactions to everything. So that was things like food. That was things like smells, whether that be cleaning stuff, whether that be perfume, laundry detergent, personal care stuff. I was just starting to have allergic reactions to everything. And I had been reading Toxic by Neil Nathan, that book at the time. And he mentioned mast cell activation syndrome as a big part in people that have mold toxicity. So I decided to look more into that. And it's very hard to get a diagnosis, especially maybe from a Western medicine allergist kind of thing, because they want to see it in the blood work and they want to see it in the urine and different things. But if you are not having a bad flare or a bad allergic reaction at that time of testing, they can miss like the high levels of histamine or whatever else they could be testing to diagnose you with mast cell activation syndrome. So people like naturopaths or functional medicine doctors will see your past history and your symptoms and you trying different things like antihistamines and um, natural supplements. And if they help that most likely you have mast cell activation syndrome, not just based alone on the testing that misses things a lot. So like another tip is instead of spending money on a test, that's really not great, like Lyme testing, right. And can result in a false negative because your histamine levels may not be what they need to be to be positive because you're not in a flare at that moment of testing. If you suspect MCAS with your doctor based on certain symptomology and inflammation, then try some histamines and try some things that help treat MCAS. And if you feel better, make a clinical diagnosis based on those observations, right? So what are, what are some of the symptoms of MCAS, Jessica? Like we know that like chemical sensitivities, right? So that's one thing is chemical sensitivities, sensitivities to smells and, and things like that, um, food sensitivities, but give us an idea of the symptom set that is associated with MCAS that you were able to identify in your own, your own journey. So usually when I have a mast cell reaction, it will lead to things like a headache, um, sinus congestion my throat being sore and hoarse and my throat actually swelling, um, which is really scary. Um, shortness of breath. Um, I usually will also get a 
lot of cramping. Um, we'll instantly have to go to the bathroom both ways. Um, my bladder will burn too. And wherever I am, I have to go to the bathroom like that second or else. And um, then too, even like the next day, I will feel like I got like hit by a truck, like just that increase of histamine and other like cytokines um, really does a number to the body and increases my pain. Um, sometimes, not all the times you get like even like stuff on your skin, like hives or rashes. Um, I don't get that as common as other people. Some people will get like flushing red cheeks during a reaction. Um, but those are my most common ones. Have you ever thought about, and, and you know, this is just, of course, me thinking if there's a connection, there's, this is not based on any factual studies or anything, but there seems to be a lot of overlap between mast cell activation syndrome and alpha-gal syndrome. And alpha-gal syndrome being a tick bite from a lone star tick causing a lot of sensitivities based on uh, food, but also environmental factors, right? We learned from two alpha-gals that you can be exposed to a, a chemical or breathe something in that has some sort of mammal meat in it or some sort of chemical that can trigger an alpha-gal syndrome reaction, but that's also very common with MCAS. So I wonder if there's an overlap between the two in, in some cases where people are maybe suffering from alpha-gal syndrome from a result of a tick bite and MCAS, or maybe being misdiagnosed with one or the other. I mean, what do you think about that? Right. That might be a possibility. Sometimes it's so hard to put all the pieces together and be like a detective based on your symptoms, but it's good to like check both things out and see what happens. So I know we kind of went all over the place here, right? So going back chronologically, you are no longer working. You're in this moldy environment. You're taking the binders, but not having much success because you did all this mold testing and realized your, your new apartment is riddled with mold. And now you're, you're uh, working on MCAS also. So what specific things are you doing to help with your mast cell activation syndrome? What are, what are some specific antihistamines or, or therapeutics you can use to help alleviate a flare when you have MCAS that are being prescribed to you by your naturopaths? So a lot of things that people try in the beginning is obviously the antihistamines that you can get in the store. So things like H1 blockers, like Zyrtec, Claritin, Benadryl, uh, H2 blockers, like Pepsid, um, things like that. But with me personally, and I don't know if it's more from added ingredients or the actual antihistamine itself, but... I would have reactions to the antihistamines, <laughs> which was hard. Um, but I'm trying to think of the name brand. I have a Benadryl that has less cruddy ingredients. It's a liquid. Uh, I think it's Genexa. I'm pretty sure. But I use that when I have a serious reaction and it affects my throat before I would use something like an EpiPen. Um, but too, with Benadryl, you can have something called a rebound reaction. So if you're taking that every six hours because you feel like you're reacting, whenever that wears off, some people will get a big dumping of histamine as it wears off. So they'll feel like they need more and it'll just have that horrible cycle 
where it's not really helping you get past the reaction. It's just pushing it back and then dumping it again. So sometimes some people have those kinds of reactions. Um, two, with antihistamines, with your doctor, they can get things at a compounded pharmacy. So if you know you have certain allergies and sensitivities to the added ingredients that you would find in the store medicine, then you can get the medicine without those triggers for you. But obviously that most likely isn't covered in out-of-pocket too. But there's also supplements that help to with mast cells. So things like quercetin and vitamin C are really good. Um, there's some combo supplements out there like... Um, I think one of the ones that I tried in the beginning was Histoquel. But the whole thing when you're super reactive and your mast cell is super bad, supplements with a lot of ingredients, if you have a reaction to it, it's hard to then pinpoint what you're having a reaction to. So sometimes in the beginning, even though it's not good price-wise, it's better to try things alone like quercetin and have that in your system and build it up and try that for a week before you add in something new and try one other ingredient. And if you try a bunch of ingredients and it's in one supplement and you can get that one supplement and you know that your body doesn't react to any of them, then you can get that combo supplement, maybe like Histoquel or there's another one called Dehist, um, but any combo supplement I've seemed to have reactions to, <laughs> uh, which is hard. Mast cell is definitely like trial and error a lot um, since you're so, so sensitive to begin with. And what helps one person isn't going to help everyone. You kind of have to experiment. Well, I do want to follow up with Jessica because it sounds like I just want to ask some follow-up questions, but for you, the liquid Benadryl helps you that you found when you have an, M, an you know, an MCAS flare and if, and you have an EpiPen as a last, you know, as a last uh, resource if you need it. Right. But have you, you also mentioned things like quercetin and vitamin C and histoquil, which we've heard other people use successfully too. Have any of those worked for you? Quercetin helps a little bit and the vitamin C helps a little bit, um, but not to the point where I feel like I'm at a good baseline and not reacting to everything. Like if I still go out and I'm exposed to things, I still start to have a reaction, but I might not need that Benadryl. I might not need the EpiPen. So my throat isn't about to close and I'm getting shorter breath but I'm still like getting the headache, the cramping, the having to go to the bathroom, the sinus stuff, like those kinds of symptoms, but it's not as extreme as it once was, but I'm still kind of experimenting to see what helps calms my body. Um, but two, even with mast cell, I want to mention is I've been doing, starting the Gupta program which is good for multi-toxicity mast cell activation syndrome with calming the nervous system and rewiring the limbic part of the brain to help with those reactions. So for you, the order of operations for your MCAS is quercetin is step one, 
And then if necessary, liquid Benadryl. And if necessary, an EpiPen. Is that like your, your toolbox right now that you have for MCAS? Currently for me, yes. So you also mentioned that, you know, with MCAS, there are things like H1 and H2 blockers. And you said H1 blockers are like Zyrtec allergy medication and H2 blockers are like, pep, you know, Pepsid. What, what are H1 blockers and H2 blockers? Can you give us a little more information about what those are and how they, how they are involved with MCAS? So they block histamine and histamine can be like in different areas of the body. So more of the H2 is more of the digestive symptoms, whereas H1 would be for more of the other kind of symptoms. All right. So now I do want to get into the Gupta protocol with you, but before we go there, I have to ask, you know, did we miss anything in your journey? Right. So we, we, I think we're, we're up to almost the present date chronologically. We're in your apartment. You're now working on, on, you know, the, the mindset piece of it and the brain rewiring and the, the Gupta protocol. Is there anything else you did from a physical standpoint or a treatment standpoint that you want to share with our listeners that you've learned that could be helpful to people listening to this, this podcast? Let's see. So to like during this time, since weight has been an issue, I do a lot of GI support now too. So that would be things like GI revive for like leaky gut, critical digestion, like with every meal, which is digestive enzymes, um, beta TCP that helps break down certain food groups as well, a probiotic. And I do like protein shakes throughout my day on top of what I eat because my body has a hard time breaking down food and digesting it and getting the nutrients it needs from food. So I knew that was one of my bigger issues and knew I needed to really support that as I'm trying to get out of molds because I can't afford to lose any more weight. Um, so that's a big part of my treatment protocol currently. And then for the mold toxicity, it's the um, biotoxin binder or the GI detox that I talked about previously and the inflammacom. And then um, I also think that um, if you're a female and you have issues with your period and it's heavy or super painful, you should look into estrogen dominance because two, um, estrogen and histamine feed off of each other. So if you have a dumping of estrogen, you can then have um, higher histamine and they've fed each other off. So for me personally, with my estrogen dominance, um, calcium deglucurate was a supplement that really helped me that I continue to take. And I went from like my period being seven days and horrible and so much pain and couldn't function to one day being in pain for my whole entire period. So I've definitely seen progress there and with the estrogen dominance and lowering my estrogen has helped me not be as reactive around that time of month because I noticed that was a trigger for my mast cell reactions too was that time of the month. Um, another thing is you can use supplements um, for anxiety support and like nervous system 
support um, to help you get through this stressful stuff. Um, things like I do drink King Coffee, which has reishi mushroom in it. That is super helpful. CBD, um, B vitamins, GABA, uh, things like rhodiola, 5-HTP, uh, L-theanine, ashwagandha, lemon balm, all those calming type of things. And with anxiety and nervous system support, like that supplement-wise, but there's so much you can do to like in your daily routine to help with that also, whether that be journaling, meditation, breath work, and so on. Um, another important thing is like vitamin and mineral support. Um, when we're going through a bunch of this stuff, we burn through minerals and vitamins like crazy. And we usually don't have enough for our body to do certain things that would help us heal. So supplementing with certain things that we are low in and making sure that we have enough minerals and electrolytes will help us get through a hard part in our journey and that I do daily. Um, also for like pain and insomnia support, um, I do magnesium, medical, marijuana, CBD again. Um, I use the Healing Rose CBD salve topically and ice and heat. Um, but two, with the insomnia part of things, you need to get sleep to heal. So that's something if you have insomnia, you really need to focus on because that's going to help you heal quicker is when you get that quality sleep. Um, that's some of my current routine. I'm also trying to get into a consistent morning and nighttime routine because I feel like how you start in your and how you end your day is super important. Um, so for example, my morning routine is usually like coconut oil pulling, tongue scraping, and then I take my morning supplement and then warm lemon water with sea salt. Uh, then I do my morning mindset journal that I created. Um, I do my Gupta meditation. Uh, I do breakfast, king coffee, and then I stretch and exercise. And then I get fresh air with my girls if it's kind of too cold like it is now to really walk very far or I go for a walk with them. So that's usually how I start my day. And how I end my day is usually with things like my um, nighttime notes journal that I created, um, doing a big brain dump. And I know we talked before we started recording about having 5,000 tabs open. So to get a good night's sleep, sometimes it's just nice to get things out of your brain and out on paper and make space so that you can rest. Um, sometimes I'll read or do meditation at night. I'll do my heating pad. Um, ice or the Healing Rose CBD salve too to help me relax. Um, if I had a bathtub in this apartment, I'd probably do like Epsom salt uh, detox soaks as well to help relax if I needed it. Maybe the next apartment will have that. Um, but also too, during this time, I'm focusing a lot on drainage and detox support. So I might do things like dry brushing, 
rebounding uh, detox foot soak since I don't have a bathtub, um, ionic foot detoxes, infrared sauna, maybe a lymphatic massage, uh, a chiropractor, uh, breath work, and even sometimes things as simple as ending your shower, alternating hot and cold can help your lymphatic system as well. So those are currently the things that I have in my routine that I find helpful. So I, Jessica, I can double the length of our podcast by going through all of that with you, but I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to just ask you about a couple of things so that we can finally wind down and stay within our, our window. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is your journals. You, it seems like you've created two different types of journals. So are, are they um, journals that you created yourself or are you purchasing journals in the marketplace that are helping you to guide through your journaling processes? I created those journal PDFs myself. In December, I actually experimented a little bit with a group that I want to create called um, Stress Less with Jess. And in that group, I want to focus on tools to help reduce stress in our life. And each month, we will focus on one tool and actually try. Because I feel like, too, sometimes people will stop and go and stop and go when trying new habits or will want to do a bunch of habits and then get overwhelmed and stop and can't stay consistent with it. So really focusing on one tool and then at the end of the month, assessing whether you would like to keep it in your daily routine, whether you'd like to keep it in your stressless toolbox in times of need or whether it didn't really work for you and then you could get rid of it. But that month we focused on journaling. So I had created a morning mindset template and a nighttime notes template for that group. And with doing that, I got a lot of feedback that people wanted an actual physical journal. So my wheels are kind of turning and kind of looking to see how I can make that possible to get that in the hands of other people. But right now it's just a PDF. Okay. Talk to us about the neural retraining and when you started that process and why you, why you selected Gupta rather than some of the other options that are available. So I just started that recently. So it's still very new. I'm in the beginning parts of it with incorporating the meditation in my day a couple of times a day and um, the journal and the alternate nostril breathing and certain things to help calm the nervous system before you get ready to rewire. And the doctor I was seeing um, thought that with like how I am, that that would be more beneficial because I already had a love for yoga and meditation and thought that that program would be more up my alley. Um, the other ones, I don't, I haven't really done them, but I feel like I've heard DNRS can be like more rigid and more like super, you have to do this and it's not as I don't know, maybe I'm a little hippy dippy. So it's not as hippy dippy. <laughs> I mean, we, we have heard from some of our past guests, that you have to have a lot of discipline to get through that program, but it's, it has been very successful for a lot of folks. But obviously uh, one of the wonderful things about this community is there are a diversity of options available. And I guess um, if you have a hippy kind of personality, maybe, you know, maybe there's a, there's a tool like Gupta that would be better for you. So 
Um, so what? So talk to us about what your goal is there. I mean, you, you gave us some general terms that your doctor believed that it would be helpful to you, but what is it that you were working on and what specifically is your goal in using the GUFTA program? So when you've been like traumatized by reactions or medical stuff in general or other traumas in your life. And you certainly have. Yes, your body is in fight or flight instead of like the parasympathetic state more often than it should be. And you aren't going to heal in fight or flight. You need to be in that parasympathetic state. So the program one helps you to relax your nervous system to get into that state more often. But the thing is to your body always wants to protect you. So if there was a certain trigger or an event that led to a severe allergic reaction and almost landed you in the hospital, every time you come around that your body's going to start thinking that you're in danger and start that fight or flight, even if it may not trigger you that time. So with brain retraining, you're trying to get out of that cycle and make a new loop in your brain and have that feeling of safety over fear and over that anxiety. So this is specifically when, when you were talking with Matt earlier, you were talking about how the mold toxicity issues were being, being helped by the neural retraining. That's how the neural retraining will be assisting you in preventing the allergic reaction. Yes, it can definitely prevent or even make less severe. I've found too, like, even if I'm out and about and I get triggered by a certain smell or whatever it may be, I will have my headphones or like for driving, have my headphones and start one of those meditations or do certain things to try to get me out of accelerating and having a worse reaction because there is such a big mind-body connection. You might be having an allergic reaction from something physical and something real, but when we worry and we have fear, then we can make those symptoms worse. So trying to do certain things like those meditations or practices within the program before any medicine is helpful. And I've found that I haven't had the need to Benadryl as much since starting it. So ever the teacher, Jess, we, uh, we, you are teaching us and dropping knowledge bombs on us left and right. Uh, but we are going to have to pause here and now make a pivot over to another part of your journey, which is your journey of transformation, right? You've, uh, you've gone through this really beautiful um, uh, journey of achievement and you've learned so much and you've taught us so much on that part of the journey. But while you were working on your, on your health and you were working on all these challenges that were creating to your health, they were also working on you. And uh, the, the little girl who always wanted to be a teacher, who went through school and, and qualified, qualified herself to become a teacher, who went and taught at many different levels is still the teacher. So talk to us about how you're now applying these God-given teaching tools differently than you had imagined you would when you were a child and when you were studying to become a teacher. Right. So at first, when I first got sick and I felt like teaching was taken away from me, it was a big like hit and it made me sad. But there's so many ways in which we can teach and it might not be with children anymore, but I have learned so much and I have so much to share 
that can help so many other people and help get diagnosed quicker or make their healing journey shorter. Um, so lately I've been stepping into um, trying to think of ways that I can help um, on social media. I'm thinking of making an Instagram where I can just share what I've learned and make it simple. Cause I feel like too, I've seen a lot of things. And like you said before this, like you might not have the ability to read a book while you're super sick. So seeing certain posts or whatnot that are super simple um, can help lead you in the right direction without reading huge books. But um, also I want to continue with like things like the stressless community and help people with tools like that, create those journals to help people overall. And it's kind of cool to see how this is changing because in the beginning, I might have felt like um, my illnesses were taking things from me and that I could no longer be me or who I wanted to be. And it's just taking a different shape and I can still be me and I still have strength. And um, this journey has taught me so much that, um, that I can still make a difference in people's lives. But just, yeah. I, I, can, I can tell you, look, you're our 240th guest and you've taught us an unbelievable amount that we never heard before or certainly taught us in a way that no one else has ever taught it. So you are a gifted teacher. That is clearly how God has created you. And those are the gifts that you have. The question is now, how do you reframe it? And one of the things that you taught us even earlier on in this podcast is from a mindset standpoint, you reframe everything, right? You reframe the mold uh, conversation rather than being upset about finding uh, mold in your, in your apartment. You, were, you reframed it to understand which is that Matt's calling the Jensen mold framework that you can define where the mold is coming from, how to, um, how to remediate that mold in your workplace or your home, wherever it is, and then how to properly bind that. So that reframing process that you use there and use everywhere is exactly what you're doing again, right? You're reframing these gifts that you had and you're now applying them differently. And you're still a chaos coordinator, but just a different kind of chaos co coordinator. And you've done a wonderful job, by the way, of coordinating the chaos that Matt and I throw at everyone who comes onto our podcast and manage mm -hmm. us very well. So these tools that you were using with, with the kindergarten classes are very powerful tools, regardless um, of who you're working with, especially when you have people with kindergarten mindsets like me and Matt, but I think it's just with anyone. So I certainly want to encourage you, Jess, to continue to develop these these pieces and these frameworks and see how you know how you can you can teach anyone if you can teach me and Matt. So talk to us, uh, talk to us, um, uh, you know, sort of as a final piece of this conversation, or teach us something. Uh, one more piece, Jess, and that is, if God forbid, um, your boyfriend has been so wonderful you, with you during the course of this journey and has been with you through the whole journey and didn't abandon you when everyone else abandoned you other than your parents, thank God for those good people. Um, what if he came in walking into this room right after the podcast and he had a tick biting him on his leg very much like I had um, you know, a couple of years ago? Uh, what would you recommend that he do? And what would you teach him to do so that he could avoid going on a chronic Lyme disease journey? So I would probably um, 
help him remove it to make sure you're removing it at the head. Um, I would also save the tick to be tested because um, testing the tick is more accurate and then you can see fully what you're exposed to, whether it's Lyme and or other co-infections. So that is super important. Um, I would then have him make an appointment with his doctors. Um, sometimes regular primary care doctors might not do what we need to and treating in the beginning is super important. So if you feel like you're not being listened to, then search for a Lyme literate medical doctor in your area if you feel like your primary care doctor isn't giving you the treatment you need. And then doing um, some antibiotics in the beginning to see, but also keeping an eye on the bite site. Um, if it is a bullseye rash um, or even just a red rash, probably circling it too to see if it gets bigger or anything changes, maybe take a picture of it as well to see if there's any changes there. Um, also, you can make things like a charcoal bentonite clay paste and put it on the site so that it pulls out anything from that area. Um, also to even say if you get antibiotics in the beginning and that's the route that you take, making sure that you know your body and if any new symptoms are coming up that you listen and that you like dig deeper from the beginning because if you address things earlier, then you might not have to deal with chronic Lyme disease. Jessica Jensen, my favorite teacher and chaos coordinator, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Jessica Jensen. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Jessica Jensen, please visit our Instagram page at Chronically Fit and Fabulous. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get you automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you leave. Thank you, as always, for listening.